This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. On November 24, 1963, Jack Ruby, a Texas nightclub owner, pushed through a crowd of people, his gun poised. He shot and killed Lee Harvey Oswald, who was in police custody for the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Footage of Ruby pulling the trigger was broadcast live on national television. Any explanation for why Oswald might have killed the United States president Died with him. For many Americans, so did the Kennedys' right to justice. Almost three months later, on February 12, 1964, more than 400 reporters gathered in the corridors of the Dallas County Courthouse. They flew in from around the world to attend Ruby's pretrial hearing. Among them was Dorothy Kilgallen, one of the most influential criminal and entertainment writers of her day. The patter of cold rain against the windows was barely audible over the metal detectors, camera crews, and flash photography. Inside the courtroom, the Honorable Joe B. Brown took a seat and waited to hear arguments. Ruby's attorney was the acclaimed civil lawyer, Melvin Belly. 
and nobody was prepared for his defense. Belly had no intention of asking the court for mercy. Instead, he straightened his glasses and announced his plea, not guilty, on the grounds of temporary insanity. Dorothy couldn't believe it. The man she believed held all the answers to the mystery behind Oswald's and Kennedy's murders was now being discredited by his own representation. After a defense like that, would anyone even believe Ruby if, say, he told them the CIA had put him up to it? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a podcast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second episode on Dorothy Kilgallen, an American journalist and television personality who investigated the shocking assassination of President John F. Kennedy. But before she could share her findings with the world, Dorothy was found dead on November 8, 1965. Last week, we examined Dorothy's meteoric rise to fame and her untimely death. Over the course of her long career, the crime and entertainment reporter earned millions of fans. But her unflinching opinions and insatiable quest for the truth also created powerful enemies, including the CIA and the mob-connected Frank Sinatra. When she was discovered dead in her Manhattan townhouse, the official report stated that Dorothy died of an overdose of alcohol and barbiturates. It appeared to be accidental, but not everyone is convinced. This week, we have just one conspiracy theory. Dorothy Kilgallen was murdered by members of the CIA and or the Mafia because of her investigation into JFK and Lee Harvey Oswald's assassinations. We'll dive deep into the shocking truths she may have uncovered, which may have led to her murder. On the afternoon of November 22, 1963, just a few hours after President John F. Kennedy was assassinated, Lyndon B. Johnson was sworn into office as president. Jackie Kennedy stood beside him. Flecks of her husband's blood still covered her pink Chanel suit. 
at a midnight press conference a few hours later, Lee Harvey Oswald stood in front of television cameras and pled his innocence. He brashly stated, I didn't kill the president. I didn't kill nobody. Two days later, on November 24, 1963, Oswald was shot while in police custody before ever getting the opportunity to stand trial. His killer was a nightclub owner named Jack Ruby, who had loose connections to organized crime. Like Kennedy's, Oswald's murder was caught on national television. The American public was hungry for answers. Among them was 50-year-old Dorothy Kilgallen. The reporter had covered JFK's wedding and political career. On one occasion, she and her son Kerry even sat down with the president at the White House. For Dorothy, Kennedy's assassination was personal. She wanted to see justice served, and after a while, she started to feel like she was the only one. On the morning of November 25th, 1963, The head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, J. Edgar Hoover, issued a memo to the Dallas police force. The FBI would be taking over any and all further investigations into both murders. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of mourners took to the streets of Washington, D.C. to pay their respects to their former president, At 12.14 p.m. on November 25th, a private funeral was held. The 1,200-person guest list included hundreds of world leaders, all paying their respects to Kennedy. Tears welled in Dorothy's eyes as she watched the news coverage from New York. On November 26, 1963, only four days after Kennedy was killed and two days after Oswald's murder, Hoover issued a press release. It said, not a shred of evidence has been developed to link any other person in a conspiracy with Oswald to assassinate President Kennedy. Dorothy was aghast to see the inquiry wrapped so quickly. Three days later, President Lyndon B. Johnson established the Warren Commission, a group whose alleged intention was to investigate the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Johnson demanded witness testimonies and hard evidence. He said he wanted justice. The two actions felt at odds. The head of the FBI essentially declared the Oswald case closed, while the president formed a task force whose mission was to investigate further. For Dorothy Kilgallen, Lyndon's Warren Commission felt like a publicity stunt a way to pretend that action was being taken while the truth was swept under a rug. Dorothy wouldn't have it. She continued to search for answers herself. In addition to declaring Oswald the sole assassin, Hoover's initial investigation determined a few more questionable things. Oswald allegedly fired three bullets in the span of 8.6 seconds from the sixth floor of a nearby building. One entered Kennedy's back and exited his throat. A second shattered the right side of his skull. The third bullet missed. Dorothy was more interested in the report's inconsistencies. 
Witnesses reported hearing gunfire from a raised grassy area nearby, which either meant that Oswald wasn't the gunman or that he wasn't working alone. The bullet that exited Kennedy's throat allegedly struck Texas Governor John Conley. It broke Conley's rib, shattered his wrist, and lodged itself into his right thigh. Any good journalist would ask themselves, how could a single bullet inflict so much damage? There would have to be a second gunman who fired an additional shot. One killer hit Kennedy and the other shooter struck Conley. But if so, who was he? And why didn't investigators want to acknowledge him? Fifty-year-old Dorothy Kilgallen couldn't ignore how the official story didn't add up, nor would she stay silent about it. On November 29th, five days after Oswald was killed and three days after Hoover announced that Oswald was the only shooter, Dorothy wrote a column for the journal American titled, The Oswald File Must Not Close. She believed that the question of whether or not Oswald was working alone was beside the point. If Oswald had played any hand in Kennedy's assassination, that would make him the most important American prisoner in a century. In Dorothy's words, how then could a man like Jack Ruby, the owner of a striptease honky-tonk, stroll in and out of police headquarters as if it was a health club? Not only did she criticize Oswald's security, but she called out the government's lack of transparency as well. Quote, President Lyndon Johnson has been elevated so swiftly to his new high post that in one sense, he has been snatched up into an ivory tower. If he could walk the streets of the nation and listen to ordinary people talking, he would realize that he must be sure that the mystery of Lee Harvey Oswald is solved and laid before the nation down to the smallest shred of evidence. In the months that followed the assassinations, Dorothy didn't get the transparency she demanded. So, she doubled down on her commitment to her own investigation. And she started with Jack Ruby. Her intuition said that he was the key to her questions. Ruby's pre-trial was set for February 12, 1964. Before she flew to Dallas to begin her coverage, Dorothy phoned Ruby's lawyer, Melvin Belly. She wanted an inside scoop to know what his plan was for defending his client. Belly smirked on the other end of the phone. He had no intention of telling her anything, but he was thrilled that she'd called. He was interested in Dorothy for her career and her beauty. He hoped he might have a chance with her. Before he hung up the phone, he told her that he was very much looking forward to meeting her. Though they'd never met or spoken before, Dorothy was familiar with Belle as well. The acclaimed civil lawyer had made headlines after winning major cases against big corporations like Coca-Cola and Cutter Laboratories. But Dorothy and Belly had more in common than their celebrity. Belly had previously represented the notorious Italian crime boss from Los Angeles, Mickey Cohen. Belly even considered Cohen a friend, and Dorothy knew Cohen all too well. Years earlier, she'd gotten into a heated feud with Frank Sinatra. 
She'd blasted him in her column for his mistreatment of women and for his association with organized crime groups. And one of the mafiosos she'd mentioned by name was Mickey Cohen. And Dorothy didn't only shine a spotlight on the mafia when attacking Sinatra. She'd also done so when she alleged that the CIA was working with organized crime to try to assassinate Cuban revolutionary Fidel Castro. Belly's link to Mickey Cohen created another connection with a different key figure in Jack Ruby's trial. Belly had previously represented Cohen's girlfriend, Candy Barr. Not only was Barr friends with Jack Ruby, but the judge for that trial had been the Honorable Joe B. Brown, the same judge that was set to preside at Ruby's hearing. How close Belly was to the judge is clear, but did that help or hurt his case? Jack Ruby claimed that his brother, Earl Ruby, had chosen Belly to represent him in the trial, but it all seems oddly coincidental. Maybe the decision to hire Belly wasn't made by Earl Ruby. Maybe it was made by a puppet master like mobster Mickey Cohen. Maybe he was more involved in Ruby's trial than it had originally appeared. Maybe Cohen had very specific plans for the upcoming trial. And maybe he already knew how it was going to end. Coming up, Dorothy interviews Ruby and leaks classified information. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. At the onset of 1964, 50-year-old Dorothy Kilgallen was dissatisfied with the U.S. government's investigation into the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Lee Harvey Oswald. So she began her own. She believed the key to understanding it all was Oswald's killer, Jack Ruby. 
He was being represented by a civil lawyer named Melvin Belly, who had connections to mob boss Mickey Cohen and had previously litigated a case for Judge Joe B. Brown, the same judge that was set to hear Ruby's trial. On February 24th, Dorothy was in Dallas for Ruby's pretrial when Belly announced his defense not guilty on the grounds of temporary insanity. It only confirmed Dorothy's suspicions. There was more to the assassinations of Kennedy and Oswald than what was being told. Once again, Dorothy called Belly. After their previous phone call, she knew that he had a fondness for her. And she was willing to use that affinity to get the information she needed. On February 27, 1964, Belly and Dorothy met for dinner. They were both staying at the Statler Hilton Hotel, so the commute only involved a few stairs. Over dinner and a few drinks, Dorothy tried to work her way into Belly's good graces. She wanted an interview with Jack Ruby, but no matter how hard she tried, it didn't work. Belly wouldn't allow it. He told her that there was no way. Ruby was crazy. But the man who'd shot Oswald hadn't seemed crazy to Dorothy, and the prosecution agreed with her. District Attorney Henry Wade told the press that the homicide had nothing to do with insanity. It was a case of cold-blooded, calculated murder. But Dorothy wasn't taking anything at face value. She wanted to determine if Ruby could possibly be insane. Allegedly, while being escorted to a cell after he'd shot Oswald, Ruby had acted strange, and Detective Don Ray Archer testified that his behavior was odd. Ruby apparently asked Archer if he'd been successful in killing Oswald. Then he asked for a cigarette. All the while, he was, as Archer described it, hyper, preoccupied, and sweaty. His erratic behavior may have been a sign of his alleged temporary insanity, but in minutes, his attitude quickly changed. After Ruby found out that Oswald was dead, he apparently stopped sweating and began to relax. Even though Ruby could now be executed for murder, he appeared calmer. And the next time that Archer offered Ruby a cigarette, he turned it down. Ruby said he didn't smoke. Even to the untrained eye, Ruby's actions were easily explained, but not by insanity. He was acting like someone whose life depended on Oswald's death. He was acting like if he wasn't successful, there would be consequences. But Dorothy didn't dare make such outright accusations, not before having all of her facts in order. Instead, she continued to publicly criticize the government's secrecy around the investigation. A week after her dinner with Belly, she wrote in the journal American, Why is Oswald being kept in the shadows while the defense tries to rescue his killer? 
Then, Dorothy must have gotten a tip that Ruby and Oswald might have known each other before the assassination. Three days later, she implied as much in another column, writing, Ruby has said repeatedly that he didn't know the alleged assassin, but then again, Ruby's plea is temporary insanity, and there are a great number of things he doesn't remember and isn't about to. On February 22, 1964, 50-year-old Dorothy had her chance to contact Ruby. Even though he had a four-man bodyguard shield around him at all times, she passed a message to him through one of the defense's co-counsel, Joe Tonahill. Dorothy claimed to have a mutual acquaintance, known to the public only as an opera singer. Finally, Ruby agreed to speak with her. They met briefly during a court recess around noon. Ruby stood up and went over to where Dorothy was seated. She noticed that his shackled hands were shaking. With the rails separating the two, they spoke for no more than eight minutes. The very next day, on February 23rd, Dorothy published a Dorothy Kilgallen exclusive with the headline, Nervous Ruby Feels Breaking Point Near. She claimed that he'd quivered with fear as he told her that he was on the verge of something he didn't understand. When Dorothy responded that he appeared to be holding up fine, he allegedly told her, I'm fooling you, Dorothy. I'm really scared. And as the trial continued, Ruby was right to be afraid. Detective Don Ray Archer testified that Ruby had explicitly told him he'd intentionally shot Oswald three times. And yet, Belly's insanity defense continued. Ruby didn't need to plead not guilty. He hadn't shot the president. He'd killed the man who murdered the president, Lee Harvey Oswald, one of the most hated men in America. Belly could have made a rather sympathetic case in Ruby's favor. Or, at the very least, made a plea deal that would have taken the death sentence off the table. But neither happened. And when Ruby was asked to testify in court himself, Belly said no. One might even argue that Belly wanted the death sentence for his client. It's also interesting to note that, on more than one occasion, Belly referred to Ruby as Oswald. Perhaps it was a slip of the tongue, or he was trying to slyly lead jurors to negatively associate Ruby with the hated assassin. Before the trial was over, Dorothy got the opportunity to speak to Ruby for a second time. Other members of the press weren't happy at Dorothy's preferential treatment, but she didn't care. She'd landed the interview of a lifetime. Allegedly, Judge Joe B. Brown was a bit smitten with Dorothy and her celebrity as well. He even allowed her to use a room in the court for privacy during the interview. The interview itself lasted less than 10 minutes. Interestingly enough, whatever happened behind those closed doors never made its way to the public. Whatever was said, Dorothy took it to her grave. Whatever she learned, it only further convinced Dorothy that there was a cover-up happening. And that Ruby was taking the fall. On March 12th, Belly announced that the defense rested, 
without ever allowing his client to speak. Two days later, around 11.15 a.m., the jury sentenced Jack Ruby to death. On March 19th, Dorothy wrote, Neither the state of Texas nor the defense put all of its evidence before the jury. Perhaps it was not necessary, but it would have been desirable from the viewpoint of all of the American people. Even after the Ruby trial ended, Dorothy kept up her investigation. Once again, her persistence paid off. Sometime that summer, an anonymous source close to the investigation offered Dorothy a top-secret copy of Jack Ruby's 102-page police testimony. And on August 9, 1964, Dorothy Kilgallen published it, even though it contained classified information. It originally appeared in the journal American, but was then circulated by the Associated Press for all the world to see. Dorothy couldn't reconcile the man in the document with a man who was so distraught over the death of a president that he'd temporarily lost his mind. Ruby's testimony stated that it was strictly his own idea to kill Oswald. And Dorothy concluded the testimony was evidence of premeditation and not insanity. Ruby allegedly said, I never spoke to anyone about attempting to do anything. No subversive organization gave me any idea. No underworld persons made any effort to contact me. It all happened that Sunday morning. Dorothy believed that Ruby had given his testimony out of fear for his and his family's lives. Leaking classified government information earned Dorothy another powerful enemy, the FBI. Agents demanded to know where she'd gotten the documents, but Dorothy remained silent. On August 21st, Two officials showed up at her house, demanding that she give them names. She responded, I would rather die than reveal the source. Dorothy's investigation never let up. She learned that Jack Ruby had friends at the Dallas Police Department, men who'd frequented his nightclub. She even got her hands on a copy of the original police logs of radio communication after the president was shot. After the bullets were fired, Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry told officers to get a man on top of the overpass to see what had happened. 24 hours later, however, Curry told reporters that his first orders had been to surround the book depository, where Oswald had been when he allegedly shot the President of the United States. Dorothy highlighted yet another contradiction. Meanwhile, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover fumed, insisting that she was getting the facts all wrong. Later, Dorothy rubbed salt in their wounds. She wrote, The FBI might be more profitably employed in probing the facts of the case rather than how I got them, which does seem a waste of time to me. At any rate, the whole thing smells a bit fishy. A chap kills the President of the United States, kills a policeman, is apprehended in a movie theater under circumstances that defy every law of police procedure, and subsequently is murdered under extraordinary circumstances. Further official statements did nothing to dispel Dorothy's suspicion. 
On September 24, 1964, 10 months after Kennedy's assassination, the Warren Commission published their 888-page report of their investigation. It concluded that there was no evidence that Oswald or Ruby were part of a conspiracy. There was no relationship between them, and Ruby had acted alone to kill Oswald. Naturally, 51-year-old Dorothy Kilgallen wasn't satisfied with their findings. She kept looking into things on her own. She learned of Jack Ruby's suicide attempts in jail. She probed sources, both new and old. Then, in the fall of 1965, Dorothy began making strange trips to New Orleans. On one such occasion, she brought her hairdresser, Mark Sinclair. Oddly enough, Sinclair went to New Orleans with Dorothy, but they didn't fly together, nor did he stay at the same hotel. It appeared that she wanted him there, but she didn't want to drag him into whatever she was doing. She might have brought him with her to do her hair on occasion, or she might have brought him with her so that someone knew where she was. Either way, in the middle of the trip, Sinclair received a harrowing call from Dorothy. The information was vague and she sounded frantic. She told him that he needed to leave New Orleans immediately. He shouldn't tell anyone where he was or who he was with, and he wasn't to ask any more questions. Sinclair did as he was told. Well, that wasn't Dorothy's last peculiar trip to New Orleans. The next time she flew down, Dorothy allegedly confessed to her makeup artist, Carmen Gebbia, that she was going to meet a source. A source who had information about the Kennedy case. What she learned this time in New Orleans remains a mystery, but the gravity of the information might be revealed in a statement she later made to one of her hairdressers, Charles Simpson. If the wrong people knew what I know, it would cost me my life. Coming up, Dorothy Kilgallen turns up dead, and the circumstances surrounding her untimely demise are officially classified as uncertain. Thank you so much for listening. We want to take this time to tell you that Conspiracy Theories will be taking the next two weeks off. We'll be back with a brand new episode on January 8th. In the meantime, we do have a special gift to share with you. While we're away, we'll be airing our listeners' most requested episodes of 2019. If you'd like to check out the most requested episodes from ParCast's other shows, subscribe to ParCast Presents to hear our best of 2019. From everyone here at ParCast, we'd like to wish you a happy holiday season. We're thankful for your support and look forward to bringing you even more unique and entertaining podcasts in the new year. Thanks for listening. Now, the conclusion to our story. By November 1965, 52-year-old Dorothy Kilgallen had been investigating the assassinations of President John F. Kennedy and Lee Harvey Oswald for almost two years. New information allegedly brought her to New Orleans, where she was to meet an unknown source who claimed to have information about Kennedy's murder. 
On November 4th, District Attorney Henry Wade announced that his office was willing to commute Jack Ruby's sentence from death to life in prison. He explained, There is an advantage to keeping Ruby alive for interviews and historical purposes. There are still a lot of unanswered questions. But not everyone wanted those questions answered. Two days later, on November 6th, Dorothy's hairdresser, Mark Sinclair, claimed that he spoke to Dorothy for about an hour. During their conversation, Dorothy apparently told him that her life was being threatened. Unfortunately, she didn't reveal who had threatened her or how. On November 7th, Dorothy made her final appearance on What's My Line, a popular television game show where she was a regular panelist. After taping, she had a vodka tonic with producer Bob Bach. When she left, she told Bach that she had a late date. Her husband, Richard Kalmar, reported seeing his wife at home around 11.30 p.m. He said that she was feeling chipper. She left him to allegedly go write her column, but whether Dorothy actually went to work is not clear. The piano player at the Regency Hotel Bar reported seeing Dorothy late that same night. His last memory of her was around 2 a.m. He also said that she was accompanied by a man. His identity remains unknown. Then, around noon the next day, November 8, 1965, Dorothy was found by her maid, lying in a bed at her townhouse on East 68th Street. She was dead. Her passing shook the nation. The New York Times wrote a two-column obituary in her honor. Newspapers around the country published the shocking news on their front pages. The official report attributed her death to a lethal combination of barbiturates, secanol, and tuanol, and alcohol. Only one of the drugs, secanol, was confirmed as a prescribed medication. The circumstances around her death, however, were marked as uncertain by doctors. Anytime there is a drug overdose, we have to consider at least the possibility that it was intentional. Did Dorothy Kilgallen mean to end her life? It doesn't seem entirely likely, but success and family aren't surefire indicators of good mental health. Dorothy certainly wouldn't be the first person to leave behind a loving family and lucrative job. Yes, but with her novel, Murder One, on the way and her passion for her investigation, I think we can at least tentatively rule out death by suicide. The most common theory at the time of Dorothy's death was that she died of an accidental overdose. This feels a bit more likely, but I am not convinced. Tuanol is not meant to be mixed with alcohol. If it was prescribed, her doctor surely would have told her as much. And it didn't appear to be prescribed, at least not from the medical notes that we could find which would mean Dorothy either managed to get her hands on some, which wouldn't be difficult given the industry that she was in, or she was given it by someone who wanted her dead. An argument for an accidental overdose is that we know Dorothy drank alcohol on a fairly regular basis. 
examination of her body found that her liver was fatty, but it wasn't in a state that would be considered cirrhotic. In other words, she wasn't prone to excessive drinking. It doesn't seem too far-fetched that she might have taken her sleeping medications with a drink or two, but she wasn't known for drinking in excess. It would appear that if Dorothy had a problem with drugs and alcohol, it wasn't of any great concern to her friends and family. Her death allegedly came as a shock to all of them. That being said, death by an accidental combination of alcohol and a slight overdose of sleeping pills was something that they could all accept. It didn't seem outside the realm of possibility. So, keeping an accidental overdose on the table, let's discuss the idea of foul play. First off, it's striking just how similar Dorothy's death was to another famous fatal overdose, that of Marilyn Monroe. They both were found in bed by their maids from a lethal combination of alcohol and barbiturates. And as we discussed in previous episodes of the show, there are many people out there who question the circumstances surrounding Monroe's death. Not to mention, Monroe and Dorothy shared connections with John F. Kennedy and Frank Sinatra. Monroe was having an affair with Kennedy at the time of her demise, and allegedly, prior to that, Sinatra had proposed to her and Monroe turned him down. Two women spurned the same man and wound up dead in the same way. Maybe Sinatra's mob connections helped put an end to both of them. And if not Sinatra and Mickey Cohen, there were plenty of other people who wanted Dorothy dead. The list of men that she implicated for crimes in her reporting is a long one. It includes Melvin Belly, the CIA, the FBI, Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry, J. Edgar Hoover, and the entire Warren Commission. Maybe Mickey Cohen, the mob, and the CIA all conspired to kill Dorothy. Maybe the fact that Sinatra wouldn't hate to see her dead was just a bonus. Maybe Dorothy found out that the CIA and the mob were Kennedy's real assassins, and they had to silence her. That sounds out there, but we know that Jack Ruby was friends with Mickey Cohen, Melvin Belly, and members of the Dallas Police Department all of whom had good reason to consider Dorothy an enemy. And we know that Dorothy had already accused the CIA of working with members of organized crime groups in an attempt to kill Cuban revolutionary Fidel Castro. An assassination of the United States president isn't such a far pivot. After all, after the Bay of Pigs catastrophe, Kennedy made it clear that he and the CIA didn't see eye to eye. He made threats to cut the intelligence organization's budget. If he'd done so, many of the members of the CIA would have been without a job. To that point, CNN published an article in 2018 titled, One JFK Theory That Could Be True. In it, Dave Perry, a former insurance claims handler who has been independently researching the JFK assassination since 1976, claims that the only conspiracy theory that he can't disprove is the one that says the CIA was involved somehow. And allegedly, he was trying to discredit those theories. Maybe Dorothy finally got her hands on conclusive evidence before she died. 
She'd already embarrassed the CIA once. They weren't going to let her live to release another explosive expose. As for the Warren Commission, the lack of transparency did make it seem like they had something to hide. And the CIA murdering the United States president would definitely be something to cover up. Their brief 10-month investigation may have been undertaken as a distraction, just long enough for Americans to let go of their suspicions about the assassination. Not to mention Dorothy's original point of contention Why wasn't the security around Lee Harvey Oswald tighter? Did Jack Ruby's friends at the Dallas police station help him commit murder? It certainly appears that someone wanted the people with answers dead. Exactly. If Belly had argued a more sympathetic case, that Ruby was angry at Oswald for killing the president of the United States and unfortunately decided to take revenge into his own hands, Ruby wouldn't have been sentenced to death. It's not that hard to believe that Belly, or the men behind Belly, wanted Ruby silent or dead. And he did die, two months before he was set to testify at his retrial. In December 1966, one year after Dorothy's death, Jack Ruby was admitted to Parkland Hospital in Dallas with a case of pneumonia. Three weeks later, he was dead. The timing of Ruby's demise seems more than coincidental. Dorothy would certainly have thought so. And when life hands you so many suspicious deaths, so much circumstantial evidence, you have to wonder. But that's the thing. It's circumstantial. A clear argument against any outside involvement in Dorothy Kilgallen's death is that there were no signs of violence, forced entry, or disturbance in her home. There doesn't appear to be any evidence that anyone was with her when she died. True, but what are the mysterious trips to New Orleans? Or the fact that Dorothy told her hairdresser that her life had been threatened just days before she wound up dead? Not to mention, she'd been investigating the Kennedy and Oswald assassinations for two years. There may have been no signs of violence in her home, but there were also no signs of her research. No files, no paperwork, nothing. Where did it go? Nobody knows. But the absence of files implies that someone might have been in the room with her. Someone who could have removed them after drugging her. How could a murderer force Dorothy to take pills? Well, the simplest solution would be that they slip the drugs into a drink. And in that case, he could have been anyone in her proximity. Like, say, the mysterious man she was with the night before. Or someone could have forced her to take the pills. If a person put a gun to your head, you might consider sleeping pills a more gentle way to pass on. True, but would Dorothy... From our evidence, she boldly pursued the truth, regardless of the cost. As morbid as it sounds, I think that Dorothy may have preferred to be shot. At least then there would be an investigation into her death. Sure, but maybe her motivations for taking the pills weren't influenced by threats to her life, but her family's. If someone entered Dorothy's home and gave her the option of taking pills and keeping her family safe, or having her killers go after her loved ones, 
she might have been willing to comply. As for who killed Dorothy Kilgallen, I don't think you can absolutely rule out the CIA, the mob, or both. If the theory is true that they were working together to kill Castro, and that they worked together to kill Kennedy, it doesn't seem so far-fetched that they would work together to kill Dorothy. As for what Dorothy learned that had them so afraid, I don't think we'll ever know. All in all, there are just too many coincidences for me to believe that there wasn't some kind of murder and cover-up. I think this conspiracy theory has some serious weight behind it. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being impossible and 10 being highly likely, I'd rate it a whopping 6 out of 10. There are too many coincidences. I do believe that a cover-up was happening somewhere, on some level, but I still have hesitation about whether Dorothy was murdered. For one thing, her dose of barbiturates was barely fatal. If someone intentionally killed her, I don't think they'd risk her potentially surviving the poisoning. That being said, I'm certainly not ruling out the possibility. I'd rate our theory a three out of 10. And that's where our investigation ends, at least for now. As of 2019, Author Mark Shaw, whose book we used in our research, is petitioning for her body to be exhumed for DNA evidence to determine who, if anyone, was with her that night. As for me, I'd be afraid to dig any further for fear of ending up like Dorothy, or Ruby, or Oswald, or Marilyn, or Kennedy. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. If you enjoyed this show, you especially might want to check out our past Conspiracy Theories episodes on JFK's assassination and Marilyn Monroe's death. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Connor Sampson, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Just a reminder that we'll be back with a new episode on January 8th. In the meantime, we'll be playing our listeners' most requested episodes of 2019. Thanks again for listening. We hope you have a wonderful holiday season. 